Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself And there's some stories I can tell you the final word cricket podcast. Ladder Collins and Jeff Lemon and as ever, Jeff, we have plenty to plug away at as we work towards what they, we're continually calling over here the biggest summer of cricket of all time. And, and I must say, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling that at the moment. We had the, the launch of the World Cup song this week, um, which was a, you know, a small but important milestone given what happened here 20 years ago. We saw Steve Smith and David Warner back in action in the Canary Yellow for the first time since their sandpaper bands. We've seen the, the international schedule release for next year, which just reinforces that there's no finish lines in cricket and a bunch of other stuff. G'day, Jeff. How are you feeling? Uh, I'm feeling primed. I'm feeling pumped. I'm feeling uh, just, just full of the good juices of life. I, I neglect to mention off the top that we have a, a feature interview with, with Dan Bredig. Uh, he's written an outstanding book, Bradman and Packer, The Meeting That Changed Cricket, mostly about what happened 40 years ago when Don Bradman and Kerry Packer resolved the cricket war, but also the considerable legacy items out of that as ever he's um, able to articulate the history of Australian cricket as well as just about anyone going around. When it comes to the administration, what goes on behind closed doors, what's buried deep in the minutes of meetings from decades ago that nobody else has the patience to sift through. He's got a remarkable wealth of knowledge on those subjects and can bring out those stories and illustrate them in interesting ways. So if you haven't heard of the book, then it might be one to go and look up. So you'll hear from Dan later in the episode. Let's start uh, at AB Field in Brisbane, Jeff. So Steve Smith and David Warner, three unofficial warm-up games against New Zealand before they take off for Europe. By the time this podcast is released, I'll already be mid-air, I'm sure, but uh, I found it interesting, Jeff, when they, they first ran out on that first morning in Brisbane, the reception was very warm towards both of them. So my first impression is that when push comes to shove, they're Australia's two best players. And after their long absence from the side, people are pretty keen to see them play again. Yeah, and maybe there's a broader groundswell of people who aren't necessarily fired up enough about it to bother venting their anger online or on the radio they're just happy to see those players back on the field and back in Australian colours and you know there was a fairly predictable amount of snark to the photos of them there were sort of promo photos released online that, that Ryan Pierce had taken of all of the players in the squad and you know of course there was some clap back to the images of Warner and Smith back in that shirt but it does remind us that a lot of time has passed even though as we've said there are unanswered questions about all that went on there's also a pretty strong keenness from a lot of people just to get on with things and forget about it. Early segue but those photos Ryan Pierce took I mean he's, he's one of the, the best cricket photographers in the world but how he gets the players to pose in the way that he does that's 
part of his gift, isn't it? Like the Adam Zampa seemingly having the bales levitating above his head and getting Glenn Maxwell to take a chunk out of his kookaburra with his teeth and, and so forth. He's uh, got a real talent. <laughs> well, it certainly shows that David Warner's not shy because he posed in the mic dropping pose with his cricket bat and you think he, he would know <laughs> that he's going to get blowback. He would know as soon as that image goes up. It'll be uh, 832 replies of people going sandpaper lol, which is quickly going to become the most boring joke on the internet my god this summer ahead is just going to be the same old predictable shit from a few chuckleheads on the internet yeah the, the barmy army stuff with the chutes instead of australia on this shirt which i mean it's not as though we're on this show especially i mean we scrutinize the act and the players as much as we probably can do but the lower rent stuff is going to get fairly tiresome i think uh, look i'm all for giving someone shit if they're due it it's just you've got to do it well You've got to be funny. You've got to be original. So when there's a distinct lack of creativity, that's when I'll be less impressed and then probably be accused of being a partisan cheerleader, which would be very funny for anyone who, you know, on the Australian side of the fence who probably thinks we're anything but. It's always the way, isn't it? When, when the minute you, you say anything that's remotely balanced about the Australian side, you're a flag waver. And the minute you criticise them, you're a self-hating Australian. You've got, a, you've got cultural cringe and so forth. There's no way of winning. So they did play. Warner, middling results. Smith, more impressive. I think the innings were, was important, not because he's in any danger of not playing in that first game against Afghanistan on the 1st of June when they get over here, but just to reinforce to the world that he continues to improve as a cricketer as you'd expect in the prime of his cricketing life and was able to put on a couple of century stands with Glenn Maxwell which will be important too given they're likely to be batting four and five. Well, Also I think that Smith was a bit out of touch through the IPL didn't look convincing didn't play that well in the first game made a, a slowish 22 and wasn't really middling them but then he's been able to string together a couple of unbeaten innings, 89 and 91 back-to-back in the next two games against fairly modest opposition. It's a a New Zealand 11, a sort of second-string New Zealand side, really. But just to be able to get in that groove and actually have the ball coming off the bat properly is going to do him a world of good. Gutted to see that Jai Richardson is not going to be making the trip to the UK, a little Dale Stain lookalike. He hasn't come up from that injury he acquired when fielding in the UAE a few weeks ago. They picked him in the preliminary squad, but for the final squad, he'll be replaced by his namesake, Kane Richardson. I like that. I think Kane Richardson, since the last World Cup, has been, whenever he's got an opportunity for Australia, he's been ever so consistent and kind of in the, the Liam Plunkett model from an England standpoint. He bowls so well in those middle overs. He has a host of slower balls which we see a lot in T20 cricket and it's not just all about pace in this World Cup it's going to be about nuance and Richardson brings plenty of that. I can't remember who it was on Twitter but someone suggested it was just a cost effective measure because they'd already printed the kits you know <laughs> save them some money on new shirts although I don't think Jai and Kane would be exactly the same size he's a, a diminutive fast bowler Jai Richardson. They're off to Gallipoli tomorrow if I mention this on the podcast last week and it's not going to be an open event per se so we'll see some images from there but it won't be a, a sort of the full court press we probably won't get any of the uh, photography that we had in 2001 and speaking of we just got an absolutely sensational tweet before we started recording from a bloke called Steve Stevens um, I'm not sure if that's his real name I hope it is who brought to our attention the photos from the 2001 uh, Australian trip to Gallipoli which it's a bit of an optical illusion but it's a great photo it has um, all of the Australians in their um, or some of them in their baggy greens and some of them in their slouch hats and as you pointed out Jeff last week the most Australian thing of all time with Steve Waugh wearing the baggy green under the slouch hat but in this particular photo it looks like he's got another baggy green on top of the slouch hat as well Um, uh, look it's probably someone standing behind him 
the triple decker. As you picked up the phone, I was hosing myself laughing when I saw this before when you answered my call. So it's unlikely they'll fall for that trope. I'm sure they'll be wearing the sponsor's products. Um, <laughs> but also in that photo, well, I'm sure one of us will um, have it on our Twitter feeds, the image of Matthew Hayden, who's jettisoned the slouch hat altogether, and he's just his big bustling chest strolling through in his brand new baggy green, which seems to you know um, fit the part. Although I'm surprised he wasn't wearing the slouch hat as well, really, given that Matthew Hayden does certainly tap into that sort of uh, symbolism in the way that he talks about Australia. Well, it really brings to mind the Tim Tam, which is a classic layered sandwich sort of arrangement. You know, you've got the biscuit layer, then the creamy chocolate layer, then the biscuit layer on top. The baggy greens in this instance are the biscuits, the slouch hat, the creamy centre. And I don't know what happens if you dunk the the baggy green sandwich into a cup of tea and and suck from one end, but I'm sure it's bloody Australian. They get to England on Friday, I think it is, next week. So that's when they start their warm-up schedule. They play a game at Southampton against England and then won a couple of days later against Sri Lanka and then we're into the into the real stuff, uh, I guess, on the week after that. It must be, what, the 25th, the 27th, and then the World Cup starts on the 1st. It's all going to happen very quickly, Jeff. I'm, I'm feeling exhausted just, con- just considering how much travel we have ahead of us, but it'll be a lot of fun. It's going to be relentless once it gets going. Um, matches every day sometimes double headers as well and overlaps and we'll be pinballing around the country but uh, looking forward to getting into it. In terms of the other news of the week to start off Cricket Australia released their schedule for the summer of 2019-20 which was largely as expected they briefed most of it out beforehand that is to say going to India in January which is far from ideal and they're not shirking that but that's the way of the world I guess with the Future Tours program and, and the balance of power between the respective boards that's led itself to plenty of debate and think pieces this week but As far as the actual fixtures as listed, the women kick off the international summer at the back end of September against Sri Lanka. They actually squeeze in six games against Sri Lanka into 10 days, which um, comprise of three T20s and three ODIs. So three of those games, the one day as will be for the in ICC championship points. Then the men also host Sri Lanka in T20s at the back of October, the start of November. That goes into another series of T20s against Pakistan in the first week of November. And then they play Test Cricket the 21st of November at the Gabba. So it wasn't last year for the first time in a fair while, but I guess that's Australia's comparative advantage. That's a ground they've not lost at since 1988. And they're going to try and return to getting that right at the front end so they start the summer on the right foot. Yeah, but also winding Pakistan back to two tests where last time they had three and the first two Mm. were... Highly competitive, you know, Pakistan nearly pulled off one of the greatest run, well, would have been the greatest run chase of all time at the Gabba and then very nearly hung on for a a tough draw at the MCG and just lost in the dying minutes. So it wasn't a series without its thrills and spills last time, but Pakistan's been downgraded. Yeah, and I don't even like using the word series to describe two test matches. Uh, It's more a couplet, really, isn't it? Because there's no white line wireless days, we described it as a coincidence. They're back-to-back fixtures um, at the Gabba, then at Adelaide Oval, which has a day-night test this year. Didn't have one when India were here last summer, but then they're gone. So as you say, Jeff, it's a, it's a bit of a shame because Pakistan, they were the number one test side in the world as of three summers ago when England gave them four test matches. And that was certainly the status they had when they came to Australia in 16-17. But it's a bit of a shame that they've been relegated. But there's going to be more and more of that now that we're into the World Test Championship and trying to squeeze in more mini-series uh, at the expense of those three and four-game series and even five matches you sometimes see between Australia, England and India. I'm sure they'll be maintained, but unfortunately, I don't expect we're going to see many more four-game series. So take, for example, when Australia went to South Africa last year in that that series that 
we were at that fateful series. I doubt that would be four matches again. It's not. The next time we tour South Africa, it's already slated for three tests and the same right. South Africa right. come to Australia next. Although we have seen through this process that the Future Tours program is as malleable as ever. So Australia was scheduled to go to Bangladesh to play two test matches in February and that's been delayed to June. And as we know, Jeff, the history of Australia hosting Bangladesh or travelling to Bangladesh, delay normally means dismissal. Like eventually they just find a way to sack it off. They, they did go there in 2017, which was definitely the outlier. The, every time that Bangladesh had been scheduled to come to Australia since 2003, they found a reason to call it off, most notably last year when they said it wasn't financially worth their while, which is a bloody disgrace, um, really. Uh, and that, of course, will never get rescheduled. And Bangladesh aren't in the Future Tours program to come to Australia for any bilateral series of any kind through to 2023. Much the same the case has been for Zimbabwe. They haven't played a test match here since 2003 either. But on this occasion, it's Australia going to Bangladesh, which has been delayed from February to June. So make sure we hold them to account on that. And hopefully it does go ahead in the June of 2020. And it isn't there isn't a reason found at the last minute not to go or they push it back yet further. I'd be very surprised if we're saddling up for a trip to Bangladesh in June, put it that way. When Bangladesh beat Australia in Dhaka, that's one of the best things I've seen in sport. It was absolutely brilliant. And in Chittagong, Australia, the next week with Nathan Lyon and David Warner, putting in a couple of worldly performances. I don't know, it just feels as though if this does get relegated or punted altogether, in theory it shouldn't due to the specifications of the World Test Championship, but history paints a fairly bleak picture when it comes to relations between these two countries, so we'll keep a, a watching brief on that. New Zealand are coming out for test matches from the middle of December through to the New Year's Test with the first time that New Zealand have played on Boxing Day since the 80s. Uh, and then you have a bunch of women's tri-series cricket against India and England. Their T20s in the build-up to that T20 World Cup, which takes place uh, in the back end of February and early March, culminating on International Women's Day. And then at the very end of all of that, Australia play New Zealand in three one-dayers in March. Unexpected, Jeff. This was the window that New Zealand would have played in January had Australia not been going off to India. And now it's been placed at this, I guess, this part of the year that we very, very rarely see international cricket in Australia. Yeah, we had cricket at that time for the World Cup in 2015, but that's the anomaly. And I guess it shows that in New Zealand don't have a lot of sway when it comes to trying to keep Australia happy because, you know, they've accommodated that move and there's, you know, a bit of argy-bargy going on with the football, you know, the AFL football um, code as well with the Sydney Swans not being happy that there'll be cricket still being played a few days before footy season mm. starts, but it is the Sydney cricket ground, so... Some other Australian news before we uh, move on to the international stuff. Cameron White hasn't been given a contract to Victoria. Jeff, we talked about Cameron a couple of weeks ago and his illustrious career, but that's now formally came to an end after 19 seasons at Victoria. I mean, Captain Victoria three Sheffield Shield titles. He played in six of them, one-day comp, variety of T20 trophies. And he's obviously not thrilled that it's come to an end. He hasn't retired. He's. I think I'm reading between the lines. I think he's available to go and play somewhere else next season. Certainly in T20 cricket, he's made that clear. I expect he'll do the same in, in four-day cricket. But yeah, the end of a, a chapter, which has been a very successful one for Victoria, and he's been right in the middle of it. Yeah, I remember him being made captain at the age of 20 when I was probably about the same age and feeling like this was a magic moment this moment of possibility that this new untested kid could be given the reins and he acquitted himself really well in a, a tough job as such a young man trying to lead a state side and forged a, an Australian 
career as well, especially in limited overs cricket. You know, played test cricket, got everything that he could have out of his career, I think. And, you know, I, I hope he is able to continue it a little while longer if he wants to. Turning our attention, Jeff, to United Kingdom. I was at the Oval the other day watching England and Pakistan in a game that was all over in 100 balls, would you believe, given the 100 starting here next year. It was rained out after 16.4 overs. But in the space of that time, we got to see Jofra Archer bowl four of them and goodness gracious me he just seem, seemingly jogs in seems to float it down and, and hits the radar at 93 mile an hour which is about 152 or something like that in kilometers an hour beats the bat routinely has the ball jagging everywhere he's an incredible player to watch and I am convinced after that performance I know it's one spell of bowling but you, you combine that with how he bowled at Cardiff in the T20 on Sunday and what he's done with the red ball for Sussex over the last few years which has been even more impressive and I'm convinced that he'll play in every international that England play this year year through the World Cup and the Ashes and it'll be absolutely breathtaking if he gets on song because uh, as we know from the Big Bash at home he's one of the most exciting players on the planet right now. Well he just very casually came in and delivered basically the fastest opening spells by by any England bowler in a very long time. He was well above the 90 mile an hour mark um, consistently and just had that presence, that menace that makes people sit up and take notice and I think that's as important as anything else really in getting people to connect with the game The conversation around Archer was is mostly geared around the World Cup squad. He was in the preliminary squad as we discussed the other week but not the formal 15 as yet which they have to agree upon the week before the tournament which means one England fast bowler will drop out for him so it'll be unlucky for whoever it is but the case is too strong I think at this stage. Another element to this Jeff is that this week we learnt the Duke's ball from 2017 and 2018 will be used in the 2019 Ashes. In other words, the Dukes they prepared for the 19 season at county cricket level has been shelved. Uh, The decision taken uh, by the ECB is that uh, they felt as though the the balls in 17 and 18 had a higher seam and and provided... Well, provided the conditions for some very exciting test cricket and it's hard to refute I mean last year the India series uh, was absolutely breathtaking cricket and a lot of that had to do with the, the lateral movement of the ball both in the air and off the seam so um, I think it's a, a great decision for, for spectators and I spoke to Stuart Broad about this yesterday actually and he said that he, he acknowledged that he'd been consulted by the ECB by Ashley Giles about what he thought about the 2019 ball compared to the last couple of years and he endorsed them going back to that earlier model so I, I mean I did enjoy some of the, the coverage back home Jeff which you would have seen too I'm sure about you know Ashes skullduggery and so, th- and so forth and I'm sure there's a part of that because they know that their comparative advantage is is moving the ball around in English conditions and we saw that at the, the pointy end of the 2015 Ashes series over here but um, it will make for a, a brilliant contest when pl- players like Jofra Archer Jimmy Anderson and Stuart Brewer will be on show for England, Chris Wokes as well, who's a master of moving the ball around. And then for Australia, um, someone like James Pattinson, who, as we saw in the Sheffield Shield final against New South Wales back in March, bowling with one of those 2018 Dukes, he can get the ball moving an absolute mile too. So that probably bolsters the case for Pattinson's inclusion. No argument for me in terms of more swing providing a more compelling contest and being able to keep that game moving. I don't think there's anything underhanded about it. I did think it was a bizarre comment from Ashley Giles to say, we want to bring Jimmy Anderson into the game. And I'm like, this is <laughs> this is a, a guy who has 575 test wickets. He's, got, he's the most prolific pace bowler of all time. I don't think he really needs extra concessions to bring him into the no. game. <laughs> Yeah, I think he's going to be okay no matter what ball he's bowling with. But, I mean, all, all the same, it might, if anything, it might just tweak that advantage ever so slightly. But, uh, yeah, it does. It, it, it will make the Australian Ashes selection 
interesting because will it tempt them to bring an extra player with them? Well, I mean, it's probably Peter Siddle, isn't it? You, you think about it rationally. He's already over here playing for Essex. He's battle-hardened in these conditions. Um, he knows exactly what he's doing with that ball. As he's got older, he's become more cagey in the way that he moves it around as well. I think of him as a 23-year-old. He was all about pace and hitting the splice of the bat. These days, he's all about finding the outside edge and reinvented himself quite nicely. So Siddle would be the obvious contender. It's partly just a, a test of whether Australia's learned their lessons from the, the Darren Lehman days in sort of 2013 styles of everybody has to be 145 plus. The other thing I'd note from that Stuart Broad conversation is that he described James Pattinson as one of the best players he's ever seen. Of course, they're teammates at Knotts, but that's a pretty decent endorsement from someone who's seen plenty of cricket over the last 10 years himself. Also in England this week, Jeff, I mentioned off the top that um, we've had the release of, of the World Cup song, which ordinarily wouldn't be necessarily a huge landmark, but there's plenty of context here because in 1999, the song was such a debacle being released over two weeks after the World Cup started, famously the day after England were eliminated from the tournament <laughs> in the group stage, and it became a bit of an emblem for all that was wrong with that tournament. Rudimental, who are a huge act over here, alongside Lauren, uh, who's a Canadian artist, they've combined to produce... We got a sneak peek the other day. It was pretty cool, actually. It was like I was in some... It was like we'd, we, I'd moved industries getting a, a single listen. We had to sign a non-disclosure that we wouldn't um, record the songs. But you can sing it from memory. What I do recall is there's quite a jaunty horn section at one stage. Does it compete with Ricky Martin? <laughs> <laughs> Cup of Life. The thing about World Cup yeah, songs is if they, if they tap into something day, special, day, I mean, there's Cup of Life, there's World in Motion from 1990, of course, Football Coming Home from 96. Like sometimes DJ Bravo, get a com- champion. Get a compl- DJ Bravo, champion in a cricket context. They do get ahead of steam. So we hope that um, it's called Stand By is the song. And again, I, I was saying before, I, I've kind of buried the lead here that I had a conversation with Greg James, who's the BBC Radio 1 host of The Breakfast Show and, of course, is the co-host of the Tailenders podcast with Felix White and Jimmy Anderson. He was launching the song alongside Freddie Flintoff. And this kind of says a bit about the, the World Cup organising committee strategy. I spent some time in there with them at headquarters this week and they freely admit that they've got a big challenge on their hands inside England with this World Cup, which they identified way back. And simply put, it's not on free TV. So you're not going to have that sort of saturation coverage as you would during, say, an Olympic Games or a Commonwealth Games where even though you may not be a fan of the sport, you kind of follow it by osmosis through the pointy end of it. So they used Freddie Flintoff to front the campaign last year. There were advertisements everywhere. And Greg James, who, despite being an absolute lover of the game and a a huge advocate for it, but um, again, he's talking to a different kind of audience on a daily basis. And it was good to uh, pull him aside for a few minutes and ask him about the, the potential for this song and how he sees the the ability to to grow the game through the course of this World Cup. What's your first take? I was relieved when I first heard it and I thought, yes, they've nailed it. They haven't gone for sort of cricket puns. They haven't gone for a sort of like comedy song. I think it's a really... I think it's a really great shout from them because it's on its own it's a really good song that we would play anyway on Radio 1 and I think it's it's perfect for, for what they're trying to achieve which is you know showing that cricket needs to burst out of its bubble and, and do slightly unexpected things. Lauren's a Canadian on debut so to speak a lot better than 20 <laughs> years ago Dave Stewart when, from the Eurythmics who released that uh, single which didn't go so well came 152nd in the charts you reckon this could uh, go the complete opposite and top it you'll give it plenty of airplay of course. Yeah it would be good it would be good for it to um, I mean number one is a, is a, is a weird thing these days in terms of streaming and buying physical copies and all the rest of it but I think it will, it could be a really big streaming hit and I think it will sound great on the radio and I think as the, as the weather gets a bit better today at the launch traditionally is absolutely freezing um, 
but I think as you know, as the mood of the nation takes over a little bit and people get into the game and they're like, oh, this this song will be around. Like this is going to be on the coverage. This is going to be the sort of slow motion montages at the end when when we're lifting the cup, hopefully. So yeah, I think it, I think it will do really really well. There's a more serious edge to the fact that we're in South London. That's just the sort of part of the United Kingdom which may have fallen out of love with cricket mm-hmm. the way that we were growing up. We yeah. love the game. How important is a band like Rudimental and finding new audiences to kind of be captivated by something like the World Cup? I say there's a small pocket of South London around the Oval that are quite pleased with cricket over the last couple of years but because uh, of Surrey but it's the most important thing to make sure to sort of future-proof the game that it, it reaches the next generation of fans like you or me but the you or me who is six or seven years old now who might not naturally gravitate towards it as a sport and might not realise the benefits that it can have for them and and, and what it gave us as kids as well and what it still does for us now hopefully we can transfer that onto another generation and you have to make use of these big tournaments like the World Cup as a showcase of all these incredible people you've got the world's greatest cricketers descending on the various sort of towns and cities around the UK and that is a brilliant showcase of, of, of what the game can do and you just need that moment you need as a fan as a young fan you need that moment where you see that innings that changes your your perspective and you go what's this game I, I liked that I don't know what that necessarily was but I want to find out more about it and it's important that young boys and girls have those people to, and they look at and they say alright Joffre Archer that I, I relate to him he looks like me I could play for England type thing and I think that's really important so I always bang the drum in trying to make cricket as accessible as possible because I think it's got an image problem with certain uh, aspects of it but weirdly if you think about it that's the minority the, the vast majority of people enjoy cricket as something that they enjoy with their mates down uh, on the village green or in the pub and it's um, the, the, the pavilion at Lords is not is a very famous image but it shouldn't be the main most famous image of cricket I don't think you have this enthusiastic wonderful audience on a daily basis on Radio 1 yeah. it's almost like a subversive influence you're getting these young people engaged with the game of course you, your podcast Tailenders with friend of the show Felix White and, and, Jim, and Jimmy Anderson on, yeah. on a weekly basis bringing new people into the sport yeah. it feels like it's a real passion of yours it is I I think because I know and, and Felix and Jimmy feel the same is that we know the benefits of it and we know that it's not this frighteningly dense game that is impenetrable it, it, it brings so much joy to so many people and um, and it would be a shame for, for other generations not to feel that as well it's a big community element to it as well and and that camaraderie and also just when you're a kid you need stuff to do and it's a great thing to do for a day you know it's a it's a brilliant thing to go out and hang out with your mates and just knock a ball around for a little bit and um i guess the other thing is that you don't we're not saying that everyone needs to love it as much as we do but i love it when cricket becomes the national talking point and suddenly your auntie knows about it or like your nan's talking about it and i think that's what's really exciting about the game is that a bit like with the Football World Cup, suddenly people are talking about Gareth Southgate's waistcoat. And you're like, OK, everyone's into this now and everyone's talking about Harry Kane. And everyone, and that's what I hope happens this summer with everyone starts talking about Ben Stokes. And like, he's good, isn't he? He's a sort of exciting talent or they, they, they see Joss Butler or they see Joffrey Archer doing an interview and they're like, this guy's amazing. Why are they not bigger stars? So I will always bang the drum to make cricket as big as possible. We've got the World Cup sitting over there. The song Stand By is out on the 17th of May. It's actually the day before Eurovision, so I think it was really well. If the UK is struggling, you can bung it into there. Greg James, thanks for having a chat on the final web. Thanks, Adam. Cheers. Great to grab Greg there for a couple of minutes. A man who's very passionate and uh, great for him to 
share a couple of minutes with us at that launch. Uh, Jeff, as we crack on uh, to uh, our weekly uh, patron subscription section of the show and some wonderful correspondence, perhaps that might be where we started, to um, our Ian Chappell podcast last week from some of our patron subscribers who, um, who've been listening to the Ian Chappell show. Um, and there was a bit of a theme last week. It was that people's grandfathers were finding podcasts for the first time through the final word courtesy of Ian Chappell. Uh, yeah, dads and granddads, but the older generation getting in there. So we've we've had a seventy six year old and an eighty four year old in in these cases, both uh, in the lingo, getting off their podcast duck, being taught how to use podcast apps. <laughs> so uh, Ted Tuvey, who was doing the washing up, he claimed uh, while he was listening to the podcast, it must have been an hour and forty minutes worth of washing up. So it took him a while to get through <laughs> the plates. But um, his his son Nick says that he his dad loves Chapelli. Um, but loves Steve War more, so he's always conflicted. It must be the triple hats that did that. Uh, and also Will Mack, who signed up as a subscriber, said uh, his 84-year-old granddad is off the podcast pair with Chapel as well. Still need to follow up to understand how he managed to make it work, but the email he got back was extremely positive. We had another message, which was in the car with the old man and a couple of mates driving back for the, from the Warrnambool Racing Carnival and could hear a pin drop for that hour, a magic listen. So that's lovely stuff to hear. This was Sean, about another one of our subscribers, who, who relayed this to us via Twitter. Um, the Warrnambool Winter Races, which is such an institution, but you know, it takes three hours to get from, uh, from, uh, from the bull back to town and, and the fact that half of that trip was occupied with them silently listening to Ian Chappell after what I'm sure was a big few days at the races is um, warms my heart. So thanks so much for that, that bit of correspondence and thanks again for all the really positive emails and texts and so forth about the Chappelle interview. We were thrilled that it brought a lot of happiness to people over the last couple of weeks. So patron or Patreon, if you're an American, is the mechanism by which you can financially subscribe to the podcast if you want to support it. It's also the way that we play the game Nerd Pledge, which people have been getting very deeply involved with. We're up to 143 subscribers uh, on the Patreon page, which is amazing. I know that I still owe everybody uh, a Sean Marsh ode, which is coming. It's in the works. I've just had to work out a couple of technical things with that, but uh, keep your patience there. And uh, thanks to some new subscribers for signing up over the last week or so. Hugh Caslake has... Uh, signed up he's actually a, a sensual player of the trombone Hugh Caslake I'm deducing Jane Catania is also signed up on a normal pledge rate thank you Jane one of the early influential horticulturalists Jane she's masterful with clippings and, and grafting good to have Jane on board on to the Nerd Pledge numbers where we get challenged to work out what your boutique bespoke subscription number means. And coming up first, Pete Nugent has put in $7.20. So it's seven twenty, which could be a number or it could be a, it could be a seven four twenty. Um, any ideas could for be buying figures? Out? Not immediately. Although I feel like if someone took seven for twenty, it could be in that 03 World Cup where a bunch of a bunch of bowlers took seven for I against countries right. like Namibia. Because I no, it's McGrath. not It's not McGrath against Lee. Namibia. Although he did take a seven for, but I can tell you who it is because I remember this game like it's tattooed on my body. Chaminda. No, Port Elizabeth against England. Oh, Andy Bickle. Andy Bickle. Of course, seven yeah. for twenty. Andy Bickle. In in a game where he also made uh, crucial runs, batting with Michael Bevan, chasing down a low target on a, a slow, sticky pitch, and they put on I think nearly a hundred for that wicket. 
Bickle. Did any hit um, Jimmy Anderson into the scoreboard, or yeah. is that maybe yep. it was Bevan? Was it Bickle? Was it? No, it was Bickle. A, just big, about to get them over the line. A big mo over wide long on that hit the uh, replay screen on the full and bounced back. <laughs> I, I remember it. So originally, I was thinking seven twenty. I was thinking it might be McGrath's batting average, but that's seven point three six. So not quite. We've actually had the same number come in from Cameron Allen and from Jamo or Jamo. I'm not sure. Mm. But they've both come through with 210, and I reckon you've got a fair idea of what 210 would be. Oh, yes. Uh, okay, Dean Jones. It uh, has to be Dean Jones, doesn't it? Dean Jones at Madras in 1986, that famous innings against India. It has to be Dino, doesn't it? There's, there's yes. no other way. Even if there is another 210, there's only really one 210 in cricket, as, as Jones would reminds people as talking about it all the time it's got to be that inning so yeah. <laughs> Dino gets yet another mention on the final word we should interview him one day we talk about him enough um, I just realised I've also got to do a couple of corrections from last week some ones that we got wrong oh yes uh, Ashley Wyborn came through with 236 I was devastated when I realised what this was because I should have got this some, some of my favourite numbers are involved in these corrections it's Chris Martin's batting average 2.36. <laughs> so it's the first literal nerd pledge where the actual 2.36 is 2.36. Um, Very good. I wrote a whole involved piece on Chris Martin's batting at one point for the Raw, uh, which in which I learned that I think he had over 100 innings. He made double figures once. Um, he made 12, and that was with three edged boundaries through the slip cordon. So <laughs> it, it was an extraordinary career. I, th- I think over half of his innings were, were naught. They were either a duck or naught, not out, because whoever was at the other end just teed off as soon as he came in. And So there's that correction. Unlucky not to get a Guernsey in uh, Warney's mural, really. I'd rather that Chris Martin in there. Oh, that would be great. Imagine Michael Clark with the massive muscles and Chris Martin, the bowler, just having a chat. Um, <laughs> Chilling. Will Mack gave us a three... 6.66, which we I think we had some other guess for it. I can't remember what it was, but we, we got it. It was wrong. Neil Fairbrother. We it guessed was, the reason we the, yep. the, the logic was that the other Will Mack, who we thought this donor was, our friend Will McPherson from the Evening Standard, we thought that uh, um, given the fact that Neil Fairbrother is the manager of many of the England players, that he might have been giving him a a sort of a tangential shout out, but we were wrong. We were wrong Funny on that. we were wrong on subscriber <laughs> and we were wrong on number. So Will McPherson's keeping his wallet closed, and uh, the real Will Mack was actually referencing cap number three hundred and sixty six. And I'm amazed you didn't get this because the first oh, thing Christ. you do is check the cap numbers. It's Ricky Ponting. I've literally got the list up in front of me today. Ricky Ponting. <laughs> It's Ricky Ponting's test cap. Now, here's another okay. one we absolutely should have got a couple of weeks ago. Kennedy Ross gave us a 339. And uh, mm. again, I think we were looking at cap numbers and we probably guessed one of those. It's uh, it's actually a number that I've seen many, many, many times. Glenn Maxwell's tally of test runs, 339. <laughs> so far. <laughs> I don't want to think of that number because that's a number that Look, I don't want to memorise that number because it should be multiples of that by the time he's finished. So that's that's purely temporary. And uh, also Nick Tuvey, who actually got the number wrong and was telling us that it was 355 when in fact it was 351, that relates to... And I spent... I wasted about two days of my life looking up various iterations of 355 to work out what it could be. It wasn't Dennis Lilly. It wasn't uh, It wasn't Joe Angel's cap number. Uh, then he told me it was a bowling number. Then I was looking up all the three for 55s and there weren't any that stood out. And then he's sort of trying to hint that it's a leg spinner and I'm going, well, hang on. Okay, well, um, who took... You know, which leg spinners took three for 55? There were several of them. Maley was in there and uh, Kerry O'Keefe took a three for 55 and all the rest of it. And then eventually 
eventually he says, oh, whoops, I was wrong. It was uh, three for 51. That was Steve Smith's debut bowling figures in 2010 against Pakistan at Lords. Tooves uh, looks a little bit like Steve Smith did when he debuted back then. I think that might be why he's so interested in him in that era. Um, it's a bit of behind the curtain there. So thanks, Tooves, for your contribution. You got about third mention in a row on the podcast. You've done well. Right. Our next couple are a couple of numbers that I think I recognise, although these listeners can tell me if they're wrong. Richard Casamento has signed up with a 214, which I think is Victor Trump's highest score. And yes, we've seen that before, and that was a good guess then, so it's still a good guess. Still a good guess now. Let me know if I'm wrong, Richard. <laughs> Thank you for signing up. <laughs> Elliot Brennan with an even better idea that I think we've also seen, which is a 213, which I know has to be the 1999 World Cup uh, total yep. that, that Australia and South Africa both made. Although it might not be, because I think this might be the third time we've got 213. So if there is another 213 and you are just banging the door down, wanting us to go beyond our 15-year-old memories of that semi-final please do sing out and, and let us know but thank you elliot brannan for that sign up alistair pitts has edited his total of 111 and he's gone all the way up to 113 throwing an extra two cents into the pot but what's 113? okay that's going to be a small australian chase against england isn't it that's going to be the oval 97 or melbourne 98 99 i reckon that's going to be australia all out 113 113 i can't immediately find anything in my head or um i mean there are about a million players who've made 113 none of those australian chases line up either so i think we're stumped it's a hard number really isn't it because it's not going to be 1.13 nor is it going to be one for 13 so um we're going to need more information perhaps drop us a clue on twitter collins adam and jeff lemon sport and we'll, we'll we'll take this up for next week yes and alistair will get back to that when we know more now abilash singh has come through with 183 183 183 is a huge number in indian cricket i know that so this is like a, a fabled number in indian cricket for all the variety of times it's come up such as uh, it was what ganguly made in the world cup in 99 which i think for a time was a record an indian record might still be actually before well sorry it can't be now because right, sharma's topped it about indian nine times sharma. yeah <laughs> <laughs> i said that, that, that's the 1999 part of me thinking oh that might, might have been a record uh and uh and also that's the score that india made in the world cup final in 83 and defended successfully so and there's a couple of others in there i think i think Dhoni might have made 183 at one point possibly Kohli. so that'll be that harry stratford has put through a Claim of one sixty one. Well, it could be a ref- could be a reference to the uh, to the nightclub that all the private school kids go to <laughs> in Paran. Um, <laughs> nowhere I've ever gone. Uh, so it, it might be it might be something to do with that. Uh, probably a few Australian uh, players who've been there as well. Yeah, quite quite possibly. Welcome to one sixty one. That that's all I've got. I think on that basis. No, actually, we 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 um we saw a one sixty one recently, didn't we? Um, Travis Head in Canberra. I reckon there's a more famous one though. I mean, there's quite a few actually. But um, what do you? What do you? What's your famous one? Cape Town. Your, I'm, I'm, I'm drawing. Twenty fourteen. Oh, Michael Clark. Michael Clark. Michael Clark's with the, greatest innings with the after he got ready for a broken fucking arm made 161 not out. I think as well wasn't he? For mine, without a doubt, the greatest of the of the Michael Clark hundreds. 
the last one for today, Chris Langmead, who's come through with a very generous pledge of $6.67, 6.67, which, you know, could be an inning score, but I reckon it's a bowling innings. I reckon it's six four sixty seven. And can I tell you who I hope it is? I mean, mm. this, this may be, you know, not necessarily the, the first player that springs to everyone's mind, but I hope mm-hmm. it's Bobby Peel. From 1894. <laughs> now he's the slow left armour who took six for 67 on a mud track in Sydney uh, to beat Australia and and win the Ashes after it pissed down rain overnight and turned the pitch into a quagmire and he rolled through Australia when they only needed a handful of runs on the last day and it worked so well that WG Grace then watered the pitch at the Oval next time Australia toured on the fourth evening as well. They had a very localised area specific downpour overnight that just saturated only the wicket Funny, right? at the Oval and and then the same thing <laughs> happened on the fifth day there and it was Bobby Peel again. Uh, while you were telling that great story I've just looked up the England Test Cricketers list because I know they're well into the well deep into the 600s now they're actually up to 690 677 Sorry, 667, rather, is Mark Wood. In many ways, the two bookends of English bowling, you know, Bobby Peel at one end and Mark Wood at the other. I'm sure we'll see him in the Ashes later in the summer. Bobby Peel, I hope so. <laughs> yeah, him too. Be a, be a bit of magic if we do. Shane Watson will be running away in, in terror. So that's it. That's Nerd Pledge for this week. Thank you to everyone who's signed up. If you want to sign up on the Patreon page to throw a few bucks into the tin, you can do that. It's patreon.com, spelt P-A-T-R-E-O-N, slash the final word. You can find us there. There's uh, some Patreon-only stuff on the page. There'll be some more going up soon. And uh, it's lovely to have everyone joining in the final word community and getting involved in this strange little project that we're doing. Indeed, it helps the wheels turn over for us week to week and this is also the, the right moment in time for us to reach out to the broader Final Word community and, and make the point that if you are interested in having a, a commercial relationship with us going forward, um, this would be the time to let us know and, and put your hand up where doing loads of stuff between now and the end of September when Jeff joins me in England next week. Um, there are several projects we have on the go concurrently um, and we are yeah, currently in the hunt to try and find a way to uh, marry up some brands to work with us and some products to work with us. And if, if that is something that, that is interesting to you or your business or your clients, um, please drop us a line at finalwordcricket at gmail.com or find either of us on Twitter. It's time for a break. Hi, I'm Ian Chappell. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. The Final Word, as ever, is brought to you by Kookaburra Cricket. If it ain't cooker, it ain't cricket. We spoke to you about them throughout the course of the Australian summer, now deep into the autumn. Of course, if you sign up, even now, through the winter, you'll be able to win bats, pads, gloves, thigh pads. Every week, there is something on offer from kookaburra.biz and sign up. To Team Kookaburra, Jeff, and a prominent member of Team Kookaburra, Glenn Maxwell, I noted, um, thanks to a a tweet from Martin Gibson today, I noted that um, he is on the front of the Cricket Australia app. I didn't imagine seeing that 12 months ago, even 12 weeks ago. That would have been a long way, I'm sure, from 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 front of mind. But th- there he is, Glenn Maxwell, leading the, the Cricket Australia app. Well, he's always been foremost in their PR efforts, even the summer where he was um, getting squeezed out of the one-day side and being made to run drinks and all the rest of it. He was on all the uh, the posters and the branding that were around 
the stadiums that he wasn't playing That's in. That's true. Yeah. So <laughs> he, he's always gone down well with the public, if if not with the selectors. But, yeah, I think Meg Lanning was on the loading page over the home summer. Tim Payne's been on there looking very sort of 1930s gangster movie um, for the last few months. So he's also a, a kookaburra man. And then he's given way to Maxie for the World Cup. So um, Glenn Maxwell looking very cheerful. It's not the photo where he's biting his kookaburra bat in half. Uh, but you could because they're just that delicious, Adam. <laughs> yeah, the uh, body into the blaze it doesn't look like the blaze that he was using through the uh through that india series which we heard from the from the guys at cooker at the time he had the same bat taped up over and over again to make sure it could keep going it was like a wonder bat like homer simpson's bat um in the uh, in the uh, springfield power plant softball team um but uh it, it wasn't to be this was a new piece of willow so i look forward to watching very closely what bat he's got with him when he arrives in the uk next week when they get back from gallipoli uh he'll be arriving of course with nathan lyon he's in the one day squad he's using the ghost and Usman Kawaza was in the runs this week Jeff he's got the kahuna Tim Payne will be in the Australia A squad he's also got the kahuna he'll of course be leading the the test side later in the summer but they're bringing him out early to be involved in some of that red ball practice ahead of time Uh, Peter Hanscom and Mitchell Stark with the surge I note that Stark's back in action in those warm-up games this week as well which is encouraging signs and then a host of Australian women's cricketers who are currently not playing right now due to the fact that they aren't involved in the in the women's IPL competition in India but they're preparing for the Ashes series over here which begins at the tail end of the Men's World Cup Elisa Healy with the Kahuna Nicole Bolton with the Ghost Sophie Molyneux the Surge and Rachel Haynes with the Blaze. Team Kookaburra at kookaburra.biz. If it ain't cooker, it ain't cricket. And now we move to our feature interview of the final word this week, which is with Daniel Bredig talking about his new book and uh, many uh, elements of the history of Australian cricket over the last 40 years. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Through the Australian summer, Slattery Media released two cricket books, bookending the season. The first of which was Gideon Haig's Crossing the Line. And the second coming out in February was Daniel Bredig's Bradman and Packer, the deal that changed cricket. And we're thrilled to have Dan with us on the final word today. Of course, he's the ESPN Crick Info Australian editor. He's also the author of the award-winning Whitewash to Whitewash, which came out in 2015 and Bucking the Trend, the Chris Rogers autobiography, which was released the year after in 2016. Dan, thank you for joining the final word. And let's begin with, well, where you found the thread of this story, which goes back about six years and a conversation you had with Richie Benno. Yeah, absolutely. It, it was something that, or a day that, one that you might remember, Adam, in your former life, the uh, Australian Sports Day of Shame in uh, in early 2013, I think oh. it was, in Canberra. Remember it. We'll never, we'll never forget it. We'll never forget, we'll never forget that press conference. I'll tell you that. And uh, yeah, so we we heard about that. Uh, while I think from memory, I was in a in a car with Peter Lawler and Mike Howard from Sydney to Barrel for an event to open the uh, World Series cricket. Uh, permanent wing of the Brabham Museum in in Barrel and just so had that thought in in my head of Brabham and Packer and World Series cricket just to to kick off the day but when we got there the keynote speaker uh, was Richie Benno and as part of his discussion about the the history and about a lot that had gone before in terms of what about the story is widely known he let us in on the secret that there is an element of this story that is not widely known at all, which is that to to conclude the the, the cricket war after a couple of years of, of split between uh, Packers World Series cricket and the ACB and establishment cricket, 
they met in person. Packer flew to Adelaide to spend time with Bradman to arrange a peace deal between them or an understanding to reach a peace deal probably would be more accurate. So hearing that from Richie Benno, I remember vividly, I couldn't believe what I was hearing and I was also a little bit paranoid that oh someone's going to write someone's going to write this uh, this story i think i overestimated the fact that uh, potentially this was after lunch and people were getting a little bit tired after a long trip uh, up to barrel and uh, yeah so it uh, it kind of uh, washed over everyone else but that really got me going in terms of thinking about doing this dan neither of those two protagonists ever mentioned this meeting they both took it to their graves. I don't know if they were had a, a lifelong ambition to hide it necessarily, but they certainly didn't let on that it had happened. And, and Packer went to some lengths to sort of indicate that it never had happened, as though they could airbrush it out. There was a brief mention of it in the minutes, um, in, in the ACB minutes from way back then as well. But why is it that you think that Richie decided to spill the beans about this uh, so many years later? I think there was a sense that once both of these key figures uh, had died that it was something that you could talk about a little bit more if you knew about it but the other thing is that so few people did and Richie being uh, extremely discerning or or, or, or extremely um, conservative in what he'd give away in, in terms of his knowledge of many events about the history of, of the game and I think in some ways there's a an element of, of sadness or, or, or of lost uh, opportunity that he probably um, left this earth while, le- while leaving a lot, of, uh, a lot of secrets with him. Yeah, I think he felt that in the significance of the occasion and the opening up of, of that wing of the museum and the fact that you had these two people side by side so closely, it was fitting to, to talk about how they had, in fact, been very close together at a, at a critical moment in uh, the history of the game. Dan, there are a lot of threads to sort of unpack from your book and, and what comes out of this meeting, the, the legacy of this meeting, but perhaps to sort of set up the chessboard, um, you can explain to listeners where Australian cricket was at in February 1979 and um, where World Series cricket had got to after two summers. The first summer of World Series cricket uh, was widely seen as a victory for the establishment forces, for the ACB and, and, and for international cricket generally. The Australian team had won a close series and an entertaining series against India in front of good crowds. Meanwhile, uh, World Series cricket really struggled to bring crowds in. But what you'd seen by the end of the season were signs that World Series cricket and Packer had a lot more money to play with, and they were also happy to experiment in whatever way they needed to to try to bring the crowds in. And, of course, they already had uh, the box office players. So it was, it was a case of bringing the crowds in to, to witness what was probably going to be better quality cricket just based on the on the person on the on the personnel that they'd managed to sign so that was the end of the first season second season one of the critical things that changes is that they get access to a couple of the major grounds they get access to the scg which is done basically through packers good and strong and you know mutually beneficial relationship with the uh, the ran labor government in new south wales uh, Neville Rand effectively sacked the SCG Trust, replaced them uh, with appointees of his choosing who would work with Packer. And you see not only um, floodlights go up at the ground, but, but World Series cricket have access. So ground access is a huge change. 
also just the, the the whole machine of promotion of the of the game. They've had one season at it, and they've learnt so much from that. They're they're pretty well oiled machine, even though it's only year two. By the time that that, that season rolls around, in terms of uh, you know blanket advertising on the Channel Nine network, a lot of signage, a lot of billboards, a lot of merchandise, and really what you see is the ACB getting overwhelmed by that commercial might and not only for any old series but for an Ashes series uh, an Ashes series that the ACB hosts that doesn't make money for them and to not, to think about an Ashes series not making money for a board I think if you think about that in the, in the terms of 2019 you can appreciate uh, how extraordinary a thing that would have been to to kind of get your head around as the as the ACB so that is the impetus for Bradman to want to seek peace because he knew that the board was fast running out of money. But equally, Packer had never wanted really to run his own cricket show himself. That was really just the... Um, some think that it may have been a little bit of a bluff initially and he never actually wanted to do it. But once he'd been pushed into it, he didn't want to do it forever. So Packer and his lot were prepared to go through a third season if they had to, but they weren't really keen to go ahead with it, were they? They were planning for that contingency, but hoping to find a way yeah, around. Yeah, well, they, they didn't have a, an endless supply of players. Their best players were now basically all in their, in their 30s. They had signed players at the absolute peak of their powers, but the next generation coming through was going to be an issue. And similarly, just the apparatus around running cricket was something that Packer didn't necessarily want to be directly involved in. And you see that there are a number of issues that he and Nine and PBL face in terms of organising and running cricket. There's a lot of turnover in terms of, of management uh, looking after it. There are issues with the um, uh, the curfew for day-night cricket matches and the lights at, at VFL Park at Waverley and issues with paying the players. Ironically enough, you know, one of the, the last uh, big arguments that that um, are had uh, are over the, um, the contracts of the World Series cricket players to go to the West Indies at the end of season two. Now, uh, I found it tremendously ironic that uh, there was, uh, at the end of the two years of World Series cricket that were meant to signal the arrival of professional wages for players... Uh, that they were having their own little pay dispute. So I think there were lots of reasons there for, for Packer to want to um, basically, now he had the board more or less where he wanted them, to uh, cede theoretical control of, of cricket and just go for the long-term TV rights. Dan, to the meeting itself, uh, it wasn't a particularly long meeting on the 13th of February 1979. If you could just unpack what you've learnt about the interaction between the two, I guess, giants of Australia in, in different ways and, and at this stage of their lives, what sort of negotiators they were, especially Bradman, really, who was coming to the end of his long career in administration. Yeah, I think the, the key things about the meeting are that, one, the symbolism of its actual happening is critical, that, that these two figures who had really complete authority over their respective areas, even if in Bradman's case it wasn't a titled authority anymore, uh, but it was mm. certainly a, a, an authority of association and of influence. Godfather, power broker. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. And so they, they had their, just their meeting at all was, was, was critical. Then you have the fact that basically Bra Packer is able to extract from Bradman an undertaking that this will... Um, this deal, whatever deal 
you need to make uh, for long-term television rights and marketing rights, I will ensure that that, that is smoothly um, passed through the board and that this is allowed to take place. Uh, and in return, the ACB has administrative control of the game. You know, they supply the umpires. They uh, are, are in control, on the face of it anyway, of the players. They're in control of, of the scheduling and all that kind of thing. The sort of level of control that they were actually to have uh, was, like I say, um, probably more... Um, uh, technical and theoretical than than they were to have in reality, and that was part of the uh, the strength of the of, of the position from which Packer was was negotiating. Now, Brabant and Packer actually talking about this was not a long conversation. Uh, they spent far more of their time together that day, uh, essentially talking about sport as, as as both lovers of it, and of course, Packer always venerated elite sportsmen um, around him and, and did so sometimes in close proximity to the management figures that he was tearing strips off, which, which was always a, a bit of a, um, uh, an intriguing dynamic. It's interesting, Dan, this perception that we have of Bradman where he's seen as a very conservative figure. Um, he's got, you know, the ructions in his own dressing room as a player. He's got the contretemps with Ian Chappell that helps precipitate the World Series split in the first place. But when you look at his role in this story, he's not particularly conservative in saying that uh, Test cricket has to stay on the ABC forever, that there shouldn't be a commercial element to the game, that the, the game shouldn't be able to maximise the revenue it can make. He's actually pretty sympathetic towards those arguments and Packer finds him the the most likely person to deal with after running into a lot of establishment opposition from you know the MCC particularly or the uh, the the Test and County Cricket Board in England and you know by extension having Australian administrators following that lead whereas Bradman's the one who's prepared to see things yeah a bit differently. and I think part of that was an illustration of where the power actually resided in Australian cricket, that it did reside with Bradman. I think a lot of the time that other administrators were opposed to Packer or um, were, uh, you know, particularly uh, abrasive in, in dealing with him, they were in part doing so because that's what they thought Bradman might have done or what Bradman wanted them to do. There's a, there's a little bit of a parallel there to, you know, perhaps um, in, the, in the present day, the, um, uh, the actions of, of, you know, News Corp tabloids in, in Australia uh, taking the view that they think Rupert personally might have without actually necessarily knowing day to day. So the fact that Bradman in himself had a much uh, more enlightened view, particularly of the need for the game to evolve and and develop and the fact that in his in his history as a player and, and then as an administrator he had always had a, a lively mind in terms of looking for changes and improvements to the game whether that be suggesting changes to the lbw law to bring bowlers better into the game so that something like body line was less likely to happen whether it was looking into the issue of illegal bowling actions in the, in the 1950s and 1960s or encouraging Richie Benno as captain of Australia to take a very proactive line in how his team played the game. All of those things suggested that uh, Bradman was, was um, I suppose you'd say, a lot less fusty about cricket than, uh, than the perception. However, 
I would separate that, of course, from the, the main bugbear, I guess you'd say, of the players at this time, which was, of course, that they wanted cricket to be professionalised. Bradman never wanted that to happen and, and, and only really um, uh, accepted that it, that it had to when there was no other alternative. So professionalism's part of this, but um, the deal that they finally land with, Dan, and it's not a particularly sophisticated one, really. It's quite blunt. Packer gets the TV rights for 10 years and PBL, the marketing arm, for 15 years through to 1994. Um, if you can just explain, Dan, the the knock-on effects of that and really how wealthy a man it made Kerry Packer and how perhaps that, that intersection's a little bit misunderstood when we reflect on it now, 40 years later, about um, what it did for players compared to what they perhaps might have expected when World Series cricket started. The deal uh, between uh, the ACB and Packer PBL was, uh, it wasn't a television rights deal, it was a revenue sharing deal. And, um, you know, the, the, the view was uh, that uh, the ACB was unable to promote the game or obviously televise the game in the way that PBL and Nine were. Therefore, uh, PBL and Nine were entitled to cuts of uh, not just the, the revenue that they were deriving from advertising um, between overs of the broadcast, which is the traditional sort of um, amount of uh, money that is that is wrought from from sporting broadcasts or any, or any for that matter. Um, it's a share of things like the gate. Uh, at the ground, it's a share of things like merchandising of of cricket shirts and and and, and equipment and things like that. So, it's very far-reaching. The other thing is that uh, the all of the blue sky, essentially that 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 could be generated from these deals went to to Packer and PBL. Um, the ACB was given guaranteed amount of money with maybe a little bit over the top in particularly profitable years but not very much and certainly not over the course of the initial 10-year deal in particular certainly not indexed in a way that was to uh, take into account the massive opening up of the Australian economy and considerable inflation through the 1980s so what looked like a reasonable deal in early 1979 when you had a lot more financial uncertainty um, in an Australian economy I make the point that uh, there had been a recession not too far previous and there was to be another one shortly after that and Bradman was very keen on guaranteed minimums but if you're getting to uh, say 1988 and thinking or 1987 1988 and thinking about where the Australian economy was uh, the ACB was just not seeing anywhere near enough of the money that cricket was generating. It's interesting, Dan, that the shorthand version of events is that, that World Series cricket is this single delineating line. Before that, the game's amateur. Afterwards, it's professional. And the players go from being poorly paid to suddenly raking in pots of packer cash. And that's not really how it worked out because basically... Packer was using the uh, the fact that the players were poorly paid. He used that as leverage to get things going his way initially, but he wasn't necessarily that keen to you know, keep inflating their pay packets afterwards. And so their pay levels settle pretty quickly to it's a professional wage, but it's a pretty modest one. You noted that Alan Border's final salary towards the end of his celebrated captaincy was 90000 a year, which was a decent chunk of change in the mid-1990s, but you know, nowhere near the kind of uh, levels that we see players getting paid today. I think the Australian captain gets about $4 bucks today, which is a fair way ahead of inflation from mid-1990s. So it's interesting that there's that perception, and yet as soon as Packer had control, he was happy to make 
sure that wages didn't spiral up too quickly. Well, he was seeking all along a monopoly. Once he got the monopoly, the specific terms on which he got the monopoly being very advantageous to him, and those individual terms were were not really nutted out by Packer, but uh, put together by his Lieutenant Linton Taylor at, at PBL Marketing. Once that had taken place, it wasn't really his worry or, or his concern. And what you see subsequently is that when there is other market pressure on Australian cricket's talent, namely the uh, Rebel Tours of South Africa in the, in the early to mid-80s, the Packer PBL response is not to look at the overall system and how much money they're giving the ACB and, by extension, the players... It's to do side deals with players that they think are of greater promotional value and, and, and thereby mm. worth keeping. So the way that there was, a, I suppose you'd say, a, a, a divide-and-conquer element to this was, uh, yeah, it's, it's quite contradictory to, um, as you say, the, the shorthand version of, of history in terms of this being the, the breakthrough moment for the lot of the players. You were able to do quite a crafty little calculation in the book, Dan, a really good passage where John Rogers, who was the boss of the Wacker and the, the father of Chris Rogers, who I mentioned off the top, you wrote the, the biography of a couple of years ago. He was able to, in his time as the general manager of the of the WACA, calculate just how much money was being um, uh, brought in by PBL versus what was coming back to the game. Annoyingly for me, uh, something that he didn't actually tell me until after the book had been published was how he had initially made that calculation, which uh, is, a, is a story worth telling. He, as general manager of the WACA, was dealing with various sponsors, and one of those was Toyota. And the advertising rep for Toyota in Perth contacted him in, would have been in 1983, to say, oh, uh, I can't continue um, doing my uh, or our signage deal with the, with the WACA. We're, we're looking in other directions. And John Rogers, surprised and frustrated by this, is like, you know, what's going on? And he's like, oh, well, don't, don't worry. I'm, I'm sure you'll see some of the money because I'm still advertising in cricket. And he said, well, go on. Uh, said, well, I'm doing it on TV now. And subsequent conversations about that were, what rates are you paying uh, Nine and, and, and Packer for advertising on television for Toyota uh, during cricket broadcasts? Once he had those figures, it was then extrapolated over the number of ads over the number of days, over the number of matches televised by nine in one season or in ultimately in the first five seasons of the PBL deal. That's how he reached what to a lot of administrators in cricket was a astronomical figure in terms of exactly what cricket on television was worth to Packer and how the ACB was seeing uh, what uh, Rogers described in the report as a peppercorn payment. So the, the, the vast disconnect between what the game was worth and what Nine was getting out of it was made plain through, uh, uh, I, I suppose you'd say, that happenstance of, uh, of Toyota in Perth uh, pulling out of a signage deal to enter a TV advertising one. Lay down the numbers for us, Dan. What, what are the exact figures? The report that, that Rogers uh, authored in 1984 uh, was entitled Three Proposals for the Advancement of Cricket in Australia. Estimated that, that Channel 9 slash PBL had extracted something like $134 million in advertising revenue over the five years since the deal, uh, of which the ACB had only seen about $2 million. So, you know, t- had that sort of information 
um, been out there in the in the public domain at that time, particularly perhaps at the time when players were considering going to South Africa. Uh, yeah, I, I, I dare say we would have seen um, some some quite different events take place in terms of the the back and forth between the ACB and Nine. Why do you think that this has been so misunderstood? That when Packer has been venerated um, and has been, you know, forever really, even before his death, this this particular moment in time was held up as an example, as Jeff mentioned before, as when the players were able to finally cash in. Why, why do you think the narrative has been so skewed that way until really this this book has started to correct the balance somewhat well there's a couple of reasons one is that so little of this detail was known by more than a few people and certainly while Bradman and Packer were still alive uh anyone connected with them who was aware of 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 this sort of information um would not have thought it worth it uh in terms of their own lives careers reputations friendships to uh, let this particular cat out of the bag. So that, I think, explains a lot of it for a long time. Uh, but equally, uh, the, the, te- the, the fact that we're dealing with uh, not just Packer as a businessman, but Packer as a broadcaster, and Nine as the primary uh, broadcaster of, of cricket all through this period, uh, so much has been said and produced and written uh, about... Um, World Series cricket from the nine perspective uh, that uh, it can become quite um, overwhelming in terms of, of, of this is this is how history did play out not just not just how it it it, it may have done now something that uh, you know I, I think the the um, the production itself was 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 well done but uh, I do wish that the um, the the um, television miniseries Kerry Packer's War from a few years ago uh, had actually portrayed Bradman. Had that series needed to portray Bradman or they made the decision to portray Bradman, they would have had to have looked a little bit more closely at the historical record to find scenes for him. And had they found scenes for him, uh, a a lot more of this, I think, would have come to light at the time. People celebrate Packer's business acumen is it a business opportunity missed that he didn't see the potential for T20 cricket? Uh, it was coming in you know, the last couple of years before he died in 2005. He wasn't interested in it. He said it was too short and there wasn't enough advertising space. You know, Where was he going to make money from T20 cricket? But it also marks the start of that slide of cricket away from Packer's empire and into Rupert Murdoch's empire because gradually, you know, pay TV starts taking up the T20 domestic leagues and um, and, and to the point that it is today where they own all of the national limited overs games as well. Tell me your thoughts about that. I think what you see in Packer around the early 2000s is the fact that, uh, this is a business figure who was once visionary, but is no longer visionary, certainly in terms of how he sees sport and how he sees cricket. Um, and I think that, in a lot of ways, mirrors where Bradman was at in 1979, certainly in terms of uh, because he didn't... Uh, like the, the, the parallel is this. Because Bradman didn't want cricket to be professionalised, he didn't necessarily have 
room or, 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 or the, the concept in his mind to be open enough to see the commercial potential for cricket. He didn't want the game to, to go in that direction, therefore he would never have thought about what, how much the game could ultimately be worth. Similarly, Packer, when you get to the early 2000s, he doesn't want to think about the, uh, the, the potential for 2020 cricket to add to the size of cricket's audience and therefore its commercial value because he's looking at it through the value of, and you know, in reference to, to, the, um, to, to the Rogers uh, report in 1984, the, the value of advertising slots. And, and, and just the, the, um, the, the simple maths that uh, a, a test match or a 50-over match lasting so many more hours is going to fit so many more advertising slots. And uh, so that also um, fed into another issue, which was not just uh, in the mind of Packer, but a lot of people around uh, television and sport at the time, which was that lots of sports at lots of times going a long way back, have tried, you know, second and third generation formats to be more television friendly. And 2020 is one of the few that actually took off and took off in a genuine expansion of the game kind of way. Uh, and uh, they, television executives I'm talking about here, uh, were almost conditioned by that stage to be fairly sceptical about anything new coming through because it didn't it, it very seldom did work out that way so and particularly when they already thought they had a model that that worked for them down a little nugget towards the end of the book uh is where packer even in the months just before his death was trying to flex muscle with team selection i know when we were together when you found out about this story and you you were you were uh, absolutely elated about it and subsequently spoke to her Mike Hussey about this uh, this story from the 2005 Ashes, if you don't mind sharing when Kerry Packer thought he might try and influence selection during the most memorable test series of all time, just about. It certainly uh, gives you pause in terms of the, the level of cut through that the 2005 Ashes had, that Kerry Packer was... Uh, extremely concerned about the fortunes and the selection of the Australian team for a series that his network wasn't actually broadcasting, that it wasn't on Channel 9 in Australia, it was on SBS. Uh, so, uh, you know, that tells you how much he was a genuine follower of the game, but also but also how arresting that series was. And, yeah, so he, he called Bob Merriman, who was then the chairman of, of Cricket Australia, uh, between the fourth and fifth tests of the 2005 series, suggesting essentially that uh, Mike Hussey be called in from county cricket to play uh, ahead of Damien Martin. Uh, now, that was uh, yeah an, an, intri an intriguing intervention, um, not only for the for the timing of it, but also I suppose for what it suggests may have also happened earlier on in uh, the many years that the Packer was involved in cricket, that he felt that he had the licence to make that call and to have that influence. Uh, there had always been a lot of um, rumours and a lot of innuendo, and, and I think at times some quite inaccurate rumour and innuendo about Packer having that kind of influence. But in this case, this is, the, uh, this is perhaps the exception that proves the rule that uh, he was taking a very close look at it. Bob Merriman answering the phone uh, with uh, Kerry Packer 
yelling down the line effectively, get fucking hussy in the side. That sort of that sort of way of doing business tells you enormously about Packer and also the fact that uh, it was only through Mike Hussey going to Pakistan basically as that conversation was taking place for an Australia A tour uh, that uh, meant that... Uh, Merriman and James Sutherland, then the you know relatively recently installed CEO of Cricket Australia, could um, tiptoe around the request without uh, compromising the selection of the Australian cricket team. Tell us about the process of researching this book because obviously your two protagonists had long since died. Your original source in Richie Benno had died, so. How did you find the right people to talk to? Um, they would have mostly been at the older end of the spectrum as well. Um, how reliable did, was the recollection and who did you get your information from? A lot of the process for something like this involves checking and rechecking and cross-checking among the people you can find who were around at the time. So uh, I was fortunate that um, a couple of the key lieutenants in David Richards on the ACB side and Linton Taylor on the nine packer side were relatively young at the time of these events and so still around and still quite uh, sharp in terms of their recollections of events so that was crucial Uh, and then uh, fortunately uh, there were um, other um, board figures uh, like Bob Merriman and like Malcolm Gray, someone who we hadn't mentioned yet, but who was uh, who was a very important figure in 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 starting to tilt the balance of power uh, from nine PBL back towards the ACB when he was he was chairman uh, of the board. Um, they, I think, what you find is that in in um, uh, in correlation almost to the checking and the cross checking with various people. The more that you find out, the more that they remember, the more that they trust uh, that you have got your uh, um, got your hands on the story in, in a way that is going to capture it properly and make sense. And they are then uh, happier to, to, uh, to talk more. And I, and I must say, Malcolm Gray in particular was extremely generous in uh, essentially letting me work out of uh, the um, the boardroom of, of his um, commercial real estate company, um, Gray Johnson, uh, in Collins Street in Melbourne, um, with the uh, notes and minutes that he had kept from uh, his year as uh, as the ACB chairman uh, in 1986-87, and that period, fortunately enough for me, was very very crucial because that's when the uh, initial first 10-year PBL deal was being renegotiated uh, with Channel 9, but Channel 9 not owned by Packer, but Channel 9 owned by Alan Bond after Packer had uh, had, had sold it on for uh, the uh, you've only, um, you only ever get one Alan Bond in your life and I've had mine deal. <laughs> sold it, then bought it back for half the price a couple of years later, famously. Uh, Dan, uh, we were at a breakfast a couple of months ago where Gideon Haig was talking and... He was reflecting on Bradman and he said that the two competing myths, I think I'm right in quoting him here and saying it's the the brand man or the bad man. And through this research project, do you feel like you're any closer to understanding or getting a through line, I suppose, on on Bradman? And and do you think that even though he passed away the the better part of two decades ago and the bulk of his 
um, contribution on the cricket field is well nearly nearly a century ago really um, that there is still a lot misunderstood about Bradman and there is still I guess room for scholarship on someone who's already had so many millions of words written about him. Oh, absolutely. The the emergence of a real and three-dimensional Sir Donald Bradman, not only as a cricketer but as an administrator, uh, is something that's taking time. Uh, It's taking time for those who would, as you rightly point out, ascribe to him one of those two poles in, in terms of being extremely good for the, for the game or, or an extremely bad bloke. The, the, the truth that lies in the middle of those two poles is something that is gradually coming through. And I think something as well that uh, we should uh, look out for further on in, into the future is that while Bradman is no longer with us, he comes from an era and was famously a prolific correspondent, a prolific letter writer, and, you know, the, the, the fact that there is a lot of correspondence that we are yet to see and we are yet to, to fully understand from him to, to many people uh, in private collections all over the world, I, I think that is, um, in terms of, say, for instance, something else that, uh, that Gideon mentioned or may not have been at that breakfast but has mentioned before, that, you know, the, the definitive biography of Brabham is still to be written and if and when it is, it's going to derive, I think, a great deal from a really comprehensive sifting through that correspondence. I hope you write it down. I've, I've said this to you before privately, but I'll say it publicly as well, that you'd be about as well placed as anyone to write that book, and I really hope you do. I'll, I'll, I'll take that under advisement. No promises, though. <laughs> While we're all having a massive love-in about Gideon, um, he also posed the counterfactual. You know, everyone can talk about uh, how good or otherwise Packer was for the game, but if Packer hadn't come along and had that interest in cricket, what else would have happened? What would have been the alternative? Well, it, it was a source of some sadness when I when I was made aware of this. The degree to which a, a key figure of the time, Len Maddox, the former uh, wicketkeeper for Australia and, and then a board director for the ACB, and the first person since Bradman to have come on the board as a former player, he took to his grave a great deal of bitterness about not being made aware of the uh, the plans that the players had made with Packer because he saw himself as someone trying to bring about positive change to what the players were being paid and their conditions around the board table and and actually had had some wins certainly in terms of the 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 increase in 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 player match payments and and things like that so I don't think that it's fair to say that the players were always going to be shafted so long as the board had the reins. I also think that in terms of uh, television and in terms of you know innovation in the game and limited overs cricket, I think a lot of those things were already starting to happen. It's just that the packer influence expedited the the change. I don't I don't think things would ha- would have happened anywhere near as quickly, but at the same time, may have happened in a more equitable manner. And and something that I think is a, is a, a sad legacy of the. Um, uh, of the the Brabham Packer deal and and its consequences uh, is that there were there was a gen- generation or more of cricketers growing up in the Australian system who became very hardened about uh, what was going on around them, if not cynical, and that contributes to a to to a corrosiveness in the in in the culture that um, is. Uh, 
yeah, I, th- I think probably um, had an influence ultimately on the Australian cricket team playing a very abrasive brand of cricket, which uh, may perhaps bring us to uh, one of your books, Jeff. Yeah, that's a really interesting conclusion you've drawn there about, I guess, legacy um, out of this deal and looking at the, the on-field uh, side of things. In, in terms of off-field, um, you tell a story towards the back of the book again about how Packer uh, saw um, test matches against lower-ranking nations as, as wallpaper, and it cost him a considerable amount of money to have them featuring during prime time, especially the, I guess, the Matthew Hayden 380, which was at the Wacko, so it was a bit of a, a perfect storm against Zimbabwe, a, a non-rating side, and, and so on. Do you think that kind of thinking still prevails today when it comes to uh, a situation like Bangladesh who haven't had the chance to play in Australia since 2003 and obviously the top end test experiment lasted all of about two seasons and you know Zimbabwe find themselves in a similar boat now that the way that Packer saw the profitability of cricket against lower ranking nations especially um, at, at peak times of the year still does uh, influence the schedule that we see of test cricket in Australia. Oh no doubt the commercial imperative the commercial reality underpinning so many um, decisions made by Cricket Australia in concert with its broadcasters for a long time nine and now obviously uh, Fox Sports and Seven Uh, yeah there's undeniable Packer influence in that and and I think that um, yeah the uh, you know that that's probably had its uh, it's had its benefits in terms of Cricket Australia recognising um, a lot faster than a lot of other nations that in what is essentially a street fight for time in the calendar, uh, that um, reliable dates and timings for cricket matches in the Australian summer are going to help broadcasters and fans alike. So I think that's something that, that, is a, that has been a positive but yeah, certainly the the the, um, the negative or the the the, the thing that uh, that sticks in the in in the throat a little bit is that uh, yeah, nations playing the game are not assessed on the validity of their claims to play as much international cricket as everyone else, but they're looked at as a commercial property and how much. Um, money are they going to be able to bring in should they be in Australia and uh, and the commodifying of cricket nations in that way is um, yeah it's a shame because it it um, it denies emergent countries the opportunity to learn and improve by playing cricket under the harsh spotlight of floodlit cricket in Australia. It was instructive that you used George Megalogenis, I thought, to uh, launch the book in Melbourne a couple of months back, given how much of his professional career has been about, I guess, the, the transfer of wealth and uh, and capital in Australia. To that end, do you think that cricket in Australia has a much better understanding of its value in the marketplace in 2019, not so much compared to perhaps 1979, but even in the last five years that we really now know um, the value of the game? Yeah, I think that I think that's true. However, the, the things that are unknown and, and not necessarily, um, or I, I don't think anyway, um, down to the, I suppose you'd say, the fine art that, that they ultimately... Um, would like to be in the in the in the minds of broadcasters or cricket administrators is you know what are the variables that uh, determine 
um, maximum return. Like, it, it can't just be, um, oh, well, when Eng- England are here, we, we, um, we, we get the biggest crowds, and when India are here, we make the most money from, um, from television rights. There, there are other factors uh, in terms of um, the, the value of the game that, that go beyond um, scheduling. You know, maybe they go to the type of cricket that's being played. Maybe they go to um, the, the order of, of, of fixturing in Australia. Maybe they go to, uh, I mean, something that, that has been experimented with recently that I am very much a supporter of is, is um, toying around with the uniforms worn by the players. You know, that, that sort of thing, I think... Um, I, I feel as though that sort of thing could have happened a lot earlier than it has. Uh, mm. And I think that, that Cricket Australia, through having quite a, a skillful head of, uh, well, now head of commercial, but formerly head of broadcast rights, Stephanie Beltrame, has mm. been able to effectively tell the story of cricket to broadcasters to create competition in the market. So the, both the deals done in 2013 and in 2018 were very good for Cricket Australia in financial terms. But... Um, yeah, there's still a lot of moving pieces there in terms of, for instance, uh, Fox Sports and streaming through KO and, uh, you know, their, their use of cricket to try to expand their subscriber base in, in summer when there's no footy on. Uh, there's still a long way for that, uh, for that story to run. Dan, we could probably sit here all day and talk through this, as we often do in, the, in our own private time, but uh, it, is, it is the right time to let you go now. And, and again, congratulations on uh, this uh, wonderful piece of scholarship, Bradman and Packer, the deal that changed cricket, Slattery Media, a sport short. It's available in all the usual places. And um, Dan, they can probably find it at the top of your Twitter page, which is at Dan Bredig. Uh, any other thing you want? Any other way they you can plug the book? Is there any other sort of special deals or anything like that going at the moment? Not that I'm uh, aware of. I would I would say though that uh, if you uh, if you're an international customer and you're not seeing it in stores, for instance, uh, probably the the easiest thing to do would be to go to um, the Slattery Media website and order it direct. Nicely said, and of course there'll be a subsequent launch in the UK later in the year. So keep an eye out for that. Dan Bredig, thanks so much for joining the final week. No worries at all. Hi, I'm Isha Gua, and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. This is The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon, and thanks again to Dan Bredig. Jeff, uh, it's great getting uh, Dan, uh, whether it's at the pub or behind a microphone or whatever it is, to, to get everything out of his very large brain, because uh, there aren't many people who know more about this stuff than him. Yeah, Bradman and Packer is the name of the book. Go and dig it up if you're interested to read more about that. Thanks to everyone for listening in again. If you want to get on the Patreon page, it's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the final word. If you uh, want to get in touch with us, finalwordcricket at gmail.com. Whether you just want to drop us a line or you're interested in sponsorship, thanks to Kookaburra for sponsoring the pod. Thanks to Bad Producer for being our production partners. And uh, if you're listening in and you want to drop us a rating or review, you can do that on the podcast platform of your choice. And I believe that's all the housekeeping. And thanks to Greg James also for taking some time to talk to us the other day. Thanks for tuning in. We can't wait to be back with you on The Final Word next week. Sorry if I ran into empty this so you know what I meant here. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself.